Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. We often talk on this podcast about how the political centre ground can shift where it is, where it isn't. And at the moment, we're in the midst of a Conservative Party leadership race, which will see the victor become Prime Minister, and various factional battles within Labour. So who better to talk to than Kieran Pedley of Ipsos? Kieran, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yes, my name my name is Kieran. I'm director of politics at Ipsos, um, which means that primarily my focus is, although not exclusively, on elections and politics and public opinion, um, on you know a lot of the opinion polling on the different parties and their leaders, um, but also lots of the issues as well. Trying to dig under the skin of uh, you know, in, in in the detail and the weeds of what, what's going on, and certainly lots going on at the moment to try and make sense of. So it's it's all good fun, and very much looking forward to talking to you about it today. Great, well, thank you very much. So, firstly, let's talk about the centre ground. Now, Ipsos recently published some research on the political centre ground. We talk about it a lot on this podcast, but it can be quite a difficult thing to pin down. So can you tell us exactly where it is? Sure. So so it's an interesting topic, um, as, as you'll know better than anyone with your podcast. Um, I suppose there's there's two broad ways you can look at the centre ground. One is one is just to sort of say, well, any issue that's out there that you can think of, there'll be an A position and a B position. And then the centre ground is just kind of like somebody that says, well, it's a bit of both, isn't it? It's something in the middle and you're just in the middle on everything. Um, that's that's fine if that's kind of the way you want to think about it. I don't think that's particularly satisfactory because I'm not sure that there is anybody that is just ambivalent or in the middle on every individual issue. What I'm quite interested in is kind of where is the median voter, if you like? So, um, you know, is that is the median voter just in the middle on everything or actually... You know, do they lean one way or the other? Let's say, let's use left or right as a shorthand um, on particular topics. So one way to explore that is to literally just ask people, do you consider yourself left, right, centre and so on? Um, but again, pe- you know, that that is asking people to sort of self-identify what they mean by centre. And actually, a lot of people consider themselves centre ground when, you know, you might not, you might not think that's the case objectively if you get into the issues with them. So what we did is we looked at 14 different sort of policy areas and gave people essentially two statements, a statement A and a statement B, uh, and asked people to say which statement they agreed with most. Um, so did you, you know, would you prefer a political party uh, saying statement A or, or, or statement B, or would it make no difference? And what we essentially did then was we, we looked at the different the gap, if you like, between the, the two when you sum up all the answers. And I'll come to an example in a minute to explain. Um, so I know it's difficult on audio. Uh, and we sort of thought, well, where is the kind of where's the net? Where, where is the public leaning on one issue rather than the other? So to use an example, um, uh, we, we, we gave people the option of preferring public utilities such as water and gas to be nationalized. Forty six percent chose that, preferred that statement. And 16% prefer the statement that they should remain in the private sector. Now, I'm not going to go through all the 14 statements on here, but you can see in that instance, the kind of net is that people are leaning towards preferring um, public utilities, such as water and gas, to be nationalised. 
um, and, and, and go so on and so forth. I don't want to give too much of a monologue here. So we went through these 14 issues and we sort of said, right, OK, where is where does the public lean one way or the other on them? And, you know, in, a lot, in, in many cases, there is a kind of split. People are kind of split down the middle. But there are some cases where actually the public do as a whole lean left. And there are some cases where the public as a whole do lean right. And I think it does create an interesting discussion about what it is, what it means to be in the centre ground as a result. And so before we get into some of the the issues and the, the changing and shifts over the years, is there a sense of what that median political position is? Could you say, as has been sort of characterised recently, that the British public uh, are left on economics but right on culture? Or is there some other way of sort of summing up? Or is there a coherent way of summing up in a sort of single way um, across the, all of these different statements? So I think that shorthand of left on economics, right on culture is quite a useful one. I think it's, um, you know, there's a certain degree, it is fair to characterise it in that way. All I would be cautious on with that is it doesn't mean that people are really, really, really left wing on economics and really, really, really uh, conservative on culture, if you see what I mean. Like, it, there is a general leaning that way, um, but it doesn't mean that, like, I don't know, the public are all Jeremy Corbyn on economics and Nigel Farage on culture, let's say, to use that shorthand. Um, but it is true. When we look at our 14 issues, uh, I've sort of mentioned public utilities being you know, nationalised and so on. The, 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 the public do tend to sort of lean in favour of that rather than privatisation. They do tend to lean towards the idea that the right to strike should be protected rather than made more difficult. But at the same time, they also tend to lean towards the idea that we should spend less on foreign aid rather than rather than spending more. Um, they, they tend to lean uh, towards the idea that there should be strict limits on immigration. So 42% choose that statement over 28% saying we should let in as many um, uh, as many immigrants as the economy demands and I should say like all of this all of the individual statements that we've used uh, are available on our website and I'm happy to tweet the link out afterwards so people can look at the very the specific phraseology and statements that we've used because again with, with anything like this I completely accept that you know people are going to have different views on how you should present these two statements how you should word them exactly and, and that sort of the thing but I think it is fair to say that generally speaking left on things like strikes public ownership to a lesser extent tax and spend but then right on things like foreign aid immigration you know law and order type things but that doesn't mean that everybody will be like that i really want to make that clear like you know there's obviously a spectrum of opinion but it does show you that like how difficult it is for political parties that tend to adhere to either a center left or center right ideology um to capture everybody because fundamentally there'll be there'll be some views with the public lean one way and they lean, lean another. Do you think it can be characterised as a broadly sort of pro-intervention stance? So from what you've said, it seems like the um, those who, I mean, essentially in the context of the Conservative Party leadership race, those who say that the Brit what the British public are calling out for is, you know, true conservatism, Thatcherism, free markets, that the state needs to be rolled back and got out, got out of the way. It seems to me that that is the, maybe not the opposite, but that is not what the data are telling us. 
that the public seem to be pro-intervention in markets, but also perhaps to some extent pro-intervention in culture in that they believe sort of slightly conservative sort of centre-right view of, of culture, which is not just a case of live and let live and the state should sort of stand back and enable everyone to kind of be themselves, you know, and and the example... I suppose you gave in terms of allowing as much immigration as the economy will take or would demand. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Well, I mean, the interesting thing on culture is that you know, we're obviously talking about immigration there. And I think there's one, there is an element to which I'm not sure there's ever going to be a moment where the public opinion isn't that um, you know, there should be less of it, basically. I think that where what, what does tend to change is that it becomes a more or less salient issue. And I think we are seeing or have seen over the last since since the Brexit vote that immigration has become sort of less of a priority as an issue for the public, even if actually they'll to their typical default reaction will be there should be less of it. Um and then you know, until you get into the weeds of that, because I mean I, there was a a sort of semi-famous, semi-viral uh clip of Nick Robinson going around doing Vox Pops uh, a few years ago where he was, you know, he, would, he would ask people about immigration and they would say, oh, actually, there should be less of it. And then he would go through different jobs and ask people, well, do you think that, do you think this is OK or that's OK? And they'd say, oh, no, 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 that, that's fine. That immigration's fine. So often when you get into the detail of some of this, then public opinion is more nuanced than, than the statement A, statement B approach that we've taken on this particular poll. I'd also say on culture, there are other issues we don't cover in this poll where live and let live, if that's the right phrase, certainly does apply. Like I think, you know, people have become much more um, uh, accepting of, you know, gay marriage and or, or, or equal marriage and, and those sorts of things uh, over the last sort of 20, 30 years. I'm not sure if accepting is the right phrase, but you know what I mean? Like the attitudes have shifted there and people are sort of much, you know, not necessarily keen on intervention there, or and they're certainly not hostile. So you know, things do change on culture, but I do think there is something in this idea of control and intervention. I mean, bear in mind that the, the Brexit, the Brexit vote was about quote unquote taking back control, and I suppose that notion of control does permeate a sort of left-right spectrum, doesn't it? Maybe part of that we're seeing at the moment with energy bills and things is that. You know, people want government to be in charge, but then, of course, the policies have to work. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to just go a little bit beyond the sort of the scope of this particular piece of research, if that's possible, and get your view on how the centre ground has shifted in recent times. So both over recent years, and I think there might be an interesting sort of piece to to compare where we are now to the aftermath of the financial crisis on the sort of the center ground of economics if you feel comfortable doing that mm. but also whether any of the big events recently from the pandemic to ukraine and we've just talked about the change in economic situation from financial crisis and austerity to uh, perhaps a more interventionist view now so how do you feel about the how the centre ground has shifted in recent times and the impact of these large events on it. So on, on the specific poll that we've done, we've just done, it's the second time we've done it. So we did it, um, I, think, I think, slightly before the pandemic. Um, so you've only got two data points there to look at literally how the line shifted. And I think that it hasn't much in that time. Um, 
probably the, the most notable one, I was looking at this before we started recording, and actually the most notable one was a slight slight increase in sort of almost hostility to not, not public spending as a concept, but a, a slight sort of increase in the idea that public spending was too high. Um, and, and we'll sort of come to that, I think, later on if we're talking about the balance of tax and, tax and spend. Um, I'm not sure I would characterize the, the, the center ground necessarily shifting dramatically over a period of time, but obviously people's priorities do. So, I mean, to the point I mentioned earlier, like I, I think immigration has always been something that people will instinctively think is too high without before they necessarily go into detail about it. But as I've said, it's become a sort of less salient issue since the Brexit vote. Similarly, I think like if you go back to the Osborne Cameron days, the idea of, um, you know, spending needs to be reined in and, and cuts are necessary and, and austerity is necessary and so on um was quite prevalent at that time whereas that's in more recent times that's absolutely not been the case and people have thought public spending should be increased uh, to sort of help public services so i think like i don't know that i can necessarily say that the the, the entire center ground has completely been recast but what you do get over time is changes in emphasis and changes in people's priorities and I suppose when you think about election campaigns, often if we use Labour and the Conservatives as, as examples, I, I know there are more parties than just them, of course. Um, in many ways, election battles can be about them trying to fight those elections on their turf, if you like, and on the, on the issues that they that they tend to prioritise in favour. Um, Ukraine's an interesting one. I don't necessarily know. I think it's probably a little bit too early to work out what the political implications are here domestically um, beyond the idea that maybe you know we should focus more on defense um because there's all sorts of secondary implications to that around energy security and things that i still think still think are being unpicked and then the final point i'd say is on the pandemic um i i, I don't have necessarily reams of data evidence for this so i'm always a bit reluctant to overstate the point but i think the scale of government intervention during that time which i think most people would accept was necessary it, depending, you, know, you might disagree on individual policies. It's hard to imagine that not having a, a longer term impact where people will in the future look back and go, well, you did that for the pandemic. Why can't you do X radical policy for this particular issue? Um, we haven't done a lot of polling on that, but I think I can imagine it being an argument um, maybe in the next few weeks and months around energy prices. You know, if people see government intervention that they couldn't possibly imagine in the past, uh, Yes, in an emergency situation, maybe they'll be more amenable to it in the future. So I, I do wonder if we're heading to a, a period of a bigger state and more state intervention, uh, even if actually that seems to be the opposite of what the Conservatives are currently saying. Interesting. So let's move on then to the public's views. And we'll start with something that you've talked about before, which is salience. So from your work, what are the most important issues to the British public? Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that we shouldn't underestimate how pessimistic people are generally. So I'll get to the actual issues themselves. But I think it's important to stress that people are pretty, pretty down at the moment, pretty pessimistic about what's going on. So our Ipsos political polls has 57% thinking that the country's heading in the wrong direction and 16% thinking things are heading in the right direction. Um, now, the political polls is something that I started when I joined Ipsos in 2019. So it's a fairly new thing. By Ipsos standards, but that's the worst scores on that measure since the general election. Um, meanwhile, 69% think the economy is going to get worse in the next 12 months, which is probably because it probably will, I suppose. Um, but like economic optimism is something that we've been tracking since the late 70s. And um, 
I mean, insofar as you can call it optimism, because people are very pessimistic, like the scores on this are the weakest they've been since the financial crash in 2008. So the background environment is, is pretty, is one of pessimism. In terms of the issues, I don't think it will surprise you to learn that cost of living is front and center. Um, our Ipsos Issues Index, which again has been sort of tracking these sort of things since the sort of 70s, literally asks people in their own words, what are the most important issues? So we don't prompt them for a list. Um, and then we sort of get their comments and we sort of code them into different themes. And rising prices and inflation is top and that's the highest and, and levels of concern about that are the highest they've been for 40 years. So pretty much since we started. Um, when we ask people a slightly different question, which is what do you want to hear the candidates for conservative leader um, talk about? It's cost of living, but it's also public services as well. So I think what you've got is a sort of a, a tricky balance for the new prime minister between having to address the cost of living. Um, and I think Liz Truss's partial, partially her solution to that is around tax but also ensuring that public services are properly funded and you know, in some cases quite real immediate crises in them. And I'm thinking mainly of the NHS, but not solely, are addressed. So that's a tricky issue. A, third, a sort of secondary issue, but I think an important one to, to keep in mind is the issue of immigration and borders. Not because it's the top issue concerning the public as a whole, but when we look at conservative voters from 2019, actually, Whereas cost of living and public services are the top two issues um, for the public, for conservative voters in 2019, it's cost of living and sort of immigration and borders. And I think if you, if you think that the new prime minister will be primarily concerned with trying to rebuild that so-called Johnson coalition um, next time, then I would anticipate that that is going to be an issue they, they look to um, make a big part of their re-election campaign when the general election comes. Um, not least because Conservative voters from 2019 aren't, aren't particularly happy with how the government have handled it. Um, and look, none of this is to say that there are other issues that aren't important. You know, there aren't other issues that are important um, to you know, schools and, and, and housing and, and all sorts of issues. But I think primarily as we sit here today in sort of summer of 2022, it's cost of living and public services and, and keep an eye on the immigration point, just given its importance to the Johnson um coalition so we've talked about obviously the cost of living rising prices and you mentioned about liz truss as we speak now the front runner in the conservative leadership race to be the next prime minister and on the economy do you have any insight into the public's preferred balance between tax and spending i mean in general if you can tie I'd imagine what could be quite disparate data into a sort of coherence. But otherwise, um, the balance between tax and spending, perhaps for addressing the cost of living and the immediate crisis. Mm -hmm. So we do have data on that, which I'll come to in a sec. I think the the challenge is going to be, and I've said this a few times, um, that I think the, the principle of tax cuts, so assuming it's this trust and assuming that those tax cuts come, I think the principle will be broadly accepted positively, you know, um, because it, it, at least it looks like it's action and it looks like it's money in people's pockets and so on and so forth. Obviously, the question will be, I suspect, in how it actually lands politically is a in like, what's the scale of those tax cuts? Like, what dents does it actually make in people's pockets, you know, in, in terms of their outgoings? 
but then B, like, does it actually work in, in, in sort of, uh, which I guess is related, but does it work in sort of improving people's circumstances, but also um, does it make things worse? I mean, one of the accusations the CNET campaign have made is that actually tax cuts now will make things worse. So even if it does, even if tax cuts were to create a sort of short-term respite for people, if, if, if three months down the line, there's a massive recession and things are, are terrible, and I'm, I'm not predicting that, I'm just saying if there are, then that, that that short-term goodwill or, or sort of warm fuzzy feeling will dissipate pretty quickly. But on the data, on the on the specifics, we have a trend question at Ipsos that we ask over a period of time where we get people to choose between whether the government should increase spending on public services, even if that means higher taxes or more borrowing, whether they should keep spending on public services at the same level as it is now, or whether they should reduce spending on public services to allow for tax cuts or less government borrowing. So you've got three choices, basically, increase taxes and spending, keep it the same or reduce taxes and spending. Or, or well, say reduce taxes or you know, uh, reduce spending on public services to allow for tax cuts or, or, or less borrowing. What we find at the moment is 45% um, think there should be increased spending, even if that means higher taxes or borrowing. 28% think it should be kind of things should be sort of kept as they are. And 20% think that spending should be reduced to allow for tax cuts. Now, of course, it's a slightly different position to the trust position because I think that she's not promising spending cuts. She's saying it's just 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 tax cuts. But there is an appetite for increased spending rather than cuts. Having said that, when we look at that by in terms of trends, um, back in sort of uh, before the last general election, October 2019, 56% thought there should be increased spending. So it has come down 11 points. And the year before, in October 2018, 66% thought spending should be increased. So there does seem to be a sort of a trend against it in an interesting way. So it sort of makes me think that actually, if the gov if the Conservatives do have a sort of tighten our belts message in the next year or so, maybe, maybe that will, that will fall on, uh, that will have some receptive ears. But of course, that only really works if people's, you know, people are happy with how public services are going and all the evidence we have is that people are really concerned about the nhs waiting times and and, and you know, specifically and but also about other aspects of public services too and then just the final thing i'd say on tax because that was a very specific question when we offer the trade-off um between sort of you know tax cuts now um versus versus sort of waiting it's a pretty even it's a pretty even split. So I would say I think the jury's a little bit out. And I think the balance is going to be about, okay, yes, tax cuts, but what are the impact on public services and the general economy in the medium term? Great. Thank you. Now, the um, the great Pandora's box, the reason that this podcast exists and the reason that it's called No Man's Land. What then is the public's view on Brexit? Hmm. It's funny, isn't it? It's never far away from the the, uh, the discourse. Um, what's the public's view on Brexit? Well, so we have a tracking question um, in our political pulse that says, overall, do you think the UK's decision to leave the European Union has had a positive or negative impact on the country or has it made no difference? And what's interesting here is that the trend going back to sort of uh, just before the last election is reasonably reasonably flat um aside from a brief uh, the period when the vaccine rollout happened where there did there did seem to be an upsurge 
in sort of positive feeling about Brexit because I think there was a there was a, a feeling that the reason the UK seemed to have got a jump on Europe in terms of the vaccine rollout was because because of Brexit and that I don't want to wade into the niceties of, of that argument but that's that was definitely a sentiment the public felt but right now now 47% of the public tell us they think that the decision to leave the European Union has a negative impact on the country, almost half, 47%. 27% say it's had a positive impact and 18% say it's had no difference. And for those of you sort of counting it all up, there is uh, also 8% that say don't know. Um, as ever with Brexit, there are two ways of spinning these numbers and I'll leave the listener to decide how they want to do it. You could say, look, you know, um, it's not quite twice as much, but you're almost getting on for a, there's a 20 point gap between the people that think it's had a negative rather than positive impact. But you could also add up the people that say it's had either a positive or impact or made no difference. Um, and that would be 45% versus 47% that thinks it's had a negative. And I'm not doing that to spin things in Brexit's favour, but just to sort of point out to people that might want it reversed or want Britain to rejoin the EU in the future, if you've got half the public thinking it's been good or it's made no real difference versus half the public that think it's been bad, that doesn't, for me, feel like a recipe for a massive sea change in the fundamental question of, of Britain's relationship with Europe. So I suspect, at least in the medium term, where the debate is going to go is about the kind of the closeness with Europe rather than revisiting um, the question itself. When you get into the weeds of it, you know, I think that the immigration issue hasn't gone away um, in terms of people thinking that, you know, the people that supported Brexit thinking, you know, that's had, a, that's had a positive impact. Vaccines I've talked about, but obviously there'll be concerns about trade and, and, and the economy and Britain's role in the world from, from Remainers as well. So I, I think that what you're steadily seeing is an erosion, possibly an erosion of, of, of support for it. But at the moment, it does seem to be these two tribes, and that doesn't seem to have changed much. One um, sort of last question on this, which uh, I hope isn't too sort of geeky and in-depth. How confident do you feel in the representativeness of the, um, the sampling on Brexit? Because, I mean, there's questions around sort of why it was a surprise and how well the sort of the polling has captured some of the people who expressed uh opinions when they weren't sort of usually expressing uh sort of political views or engaging with the political process so how accurate or how confident are you and can you be that this accurately reflects the full and true um sort of views of the british public on Brexit, or do you fear that you might still be missing uh, some people, let's say, for example, those who are more favourable towards Brexit um, in this sampling? My feeling is if we were, if we were missing anybody, it would probably be in that direction. Um, it's something that we're cognizant of. Um, I think the answer is I'm, I am confident, but not complacent. Um, one of the things we try very hard to do, and I know the pollsters do as well, is, is to look at the education um breakdown of our samples um so p what pe people will know that some of the key 
great key demographic differences in our politics at the moment are age-related, but also education-related, so whether people went to university or not. But also beyond that, actually, um, whether people have no qualifications at all. So within that non-graduate uh, sort of portion of the population, which is still sort of depending on depending on whether you're talking about GB, UK, what different age groups, around 30-ish percent uh, graduates. Depend again, it sort of moves around a little bit depending on where you cut the data. Um, it's not quite enough to have graduate versus non-graduate sample because there's so many non-graduates and there's a disparate level of education and attainment within them. So we do make a lot of effort to try and get as many people without qualifications and different degrees of, pardon the pun, of, of non-graduates um, non within our samples. But it is a challenge. I think what I'd say as well on, though, on, on, on Brexit itself, there maybe is a difference between getting just a general read on what the public as a whole think about it versus predicting a vote and who's going to show up and vote in a um in, in a sort of referendum because i think that one of the added one of the added challenges with voting intention whether it's on brexit or or, or vote or, or like a, a westminster election or a scottish parliament election or whatever it is it's obviously you're not just asking about you're not trying to get just a representative sample of the population you're trying to get voters and you know, that can be a bit of a moving target so I, i'm pretty confident in this sentiment if you were going to say to me like how confident are you about like whether people want to rejoin or not i think that that's a slightly different question but um you know confident but not complacent is probably the way i would summarize it brilliant and thank you very much for indulging my uh little piece on uh sampling there so let's go back out of the rabbit hole and talk about one of the um the big and enduring issues before we fi finish this section on the public's views so the cost of living is obviously in the news at the moment but as relatedly are strikes so where are the public firstly on action on the cost of living and how to pay for it something we've touched on a little bit before but in case there's anything you wanted to add or summarize mm. there and then finally for this section, what are their views on strikes, which is obviously related to the cost of living? Yeah, so I'll focus more on strikes here than cost of living because I know we've talked about it. But one of the things I did notice, which I thought I'd mention, was Liz Trust does seem to be, and I'm reluctant to sort of declare her the winner, because, but, but she does look like she's a front runner. I think that's fair. I've noticed how she seems to be doubling down this evening um, on sort of opposing windfall taxes. And that's an interesting, polite way of putting it, polite use of the word interesting there. It's an interesting idea, an interesting strategy to double down against that, because I do think that windfall taxes are pretty popular, basically, and particularly when you're seeing record profits from, uh, or you know, quite significant profits from energy companies. We asked, um, I think it was back in January, February, I forget exactly when, but it was, it was earlier this year, why people thought the cost of living was rising um and at the time you know things like the pandemic and, and you know were and and you know the russian invasion of ukraine and things like that um were sort of top of mind as were the government's policies but what stood out to me and i haven't got the figures in front of me but one of the top issues was also um companies making excessive profits so again i, I do i do think that that is something that if the Labour Party were to say, actually, no, we, we think there should be some sort of beefed up windfall tax, insert detail here, I do think that would poll well. And I don't think that would poll well in a way that like, um, I don't think that would be in a way that 
the Conservatives could attack Labour on being sort of anti-business necessarily. I think people are looking are looking for help um, at this point in time. Um, so I'll leave that there. But on, on strikes, we did a fair bit of polling around that, both in this most recent poll around the centre ground, but also um, around the rail strikes that, that people will be familiar with. What struck me, pardon the pun, uh, was that actually when you look at the most recent polling, 39% remember when we were talking about choosing the different statements, 39% prefer the statement that the right to strike should be protected, 39% versus 26% that think it should be made more difficult to strike. And again, there's this whole other sway of people that don't have an opinion either way. So I do think there's a sense, and I don't know if this is a generational thing that like a lot of our political editors and senior, like senior politicians that grew up at a time during the sort of nineties uh, and, and later where, they, where there was a consensus that hammering unions was a good idea politically because of Thatcher and the minor strikes and you know, Blair coming in and so on. I don't know if people have been a bit swayed by that and, and, and events that took place, I don't know, like 30, 40 years ago, Actually, right now, there's generally quite a decent amount of public support for that, at least the principle of striking. So to put all the numbers to that, back in, I think it was June, 85% told us that they think it's important to have unions. Six in 10 told us that they think workers in Britain have too little power. So there's definitely support for the principle. Where it gets more blurred is in the practice, as ever. When we asked about those particular strikes at the time, 35% supported the uh, rail strikes and 35% opposed so so in a funny way god bless the public there's they support the principle of it and i think unions are important but when they see the disruption they wobble um and i think actually to be to, to defend the public you know it's probably quite a logical position in a way you know i support the principle but i don't like the disruption that comes with it and i think there's lessons on both sides there for both sides there on the government side I think the lesson is don't assume that people are going to be naturally hostile, particularly in a cost of living crisis, um, which is parlance that's sort of become the way people talk about it, even the government. Um, but on the union side, of course, you've got to remember that whilst people might support the principle of you striking, if that does, if that builds and builds and builds and they see more and more and more and more of it, then that sympathy will wane. So I don't think it's a black and white issue, um, but perhaps there's more support than I went in expecting, um, at least for the principle. Great, thank you. Now, finally, let's come to the political parties. But we'll start with a very sort of general point, which is what are the public now looking for in their politicians before we come on to the, uh, the sort of specifics of each party? So we asked a question recently um, in July after Boris Johnson had resigned or indicated his he was going to, um, which characteristics are the most important in deciding what makes a good prime minister? The top, the top one, or joint top one, I should say, was an honest person, 68%, so that was important, followed by 66% saying they understand the problems facing Britain. Um, there'd been a 10-point increase in honesty as an, as, as an important point from mid-June. So there definitely is something post-Johnson in people wanting someone that they feel is honest. How you de how you demonstrate that honesty is a whole other question, I suppose. Um, but 
Uh, you know, there's lots of debates about that. Um, is it about just delivering? Is it about leveling with people and giving them the hard truths? You know, it, it's subjective, but honesty is important. Understanding the problems facing Britain and being in touch with ordinary people, 59% say that are the top, so that makes the top three. And then you also have sort of what I would call more traditional conventional leadership traits, like being a strong leader, good in a crisis, capable leader, that sort of thing. So this idea of strength and being decisive and in charge. So being in charge, decisive, but also in touch are important as is, as is being honest. And I think, again, when we talk about being in touch, that ties back to what we were talking about earlier of what the issues are. I think, you know, it's that blend of cost of living, um, public services but then again if you're if you're specifically a tory prime minister looking at that 2019 tory vote and the specific issues of concern to them and just on the the question of honesty do the public expect their politicians to be honest do they have a high or a low opinion of of politicians honesty we won't surprise you to know that people generally find politicians to be dishonest they don't they don't certainly don't rate them uh you know top of the list on those um we do have polling on this but i haven't got it in front of me um you know people tend to tend to sort of trust doctors and you know and then sort of public servants rather than politicians at the same time you can poll on individual politicians right and you know, not all politicians are created equal and one of the things we did find with boris johnson is that when we when we asked um there's there, there are some leadership traits that we ask about the prime minister of the day and the leader of the opposition and one of them is uh we asked do you think that this particular politician is more honest than most politicians um and boris johnson was in single digits for people that agreed with that so yes people don't particularly trust politicians but there was a very specific boris johnson issue with trust i think that's that's undeniable and you know, his supporters might not like that being said but that's what the data says Okay, then. And in terms of party politics, what are the public's views of the two contenders to be the next prime minister? So I think going the important point is going into this contest, Sunak was much more of a known entity. So he started off polling better in terms of you know, who, would, who would make a good prime minister, Richie Sunak or Liz Truss, and, and also when you compare to some of the other people that were running. Um, but right now, when we ask, do you think Rishi Sunak would make a good or bad prime minister? 32% say good, 35% say bad. It's a pretty split. Liz Truss, 30% think she'd be a good prime minister, 32% say bad. So there's not really, there isn't really much difference between them. And when you look at the opinions of, I won't read out loads of figures on, 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 a, on an audio recording, but when you go through the, the 2019 Conservative vote, which I do keep coming back to, not that it's the be all and end all, but I, I, I can imagine one of the strategies that Tories will use is to try and reassemble that coalition. Liz Truss is going in one direction with that group, which is positive, and Rishi Sunak is going in the other direction. So, you know, I don't think there's any sense of one being more electable than the other. Um, uh, and you know, obviously, we don't know what their record in government would be anyway. I think it's going to be more, more important. Um, but with, with Tory voters themselves, trust does seem to be going in the right direction and Sunak in the wrong direction. And then aside from the, the sort of the individuals themselves, how well did the agendas of each, and especially we've had this sort of discussion about tax cuts, and we have talked about this a little bit in terms of the sort of tax cuts and spending and the cost of living, but how well do their agendas as well as, you know, as much as you've been able to sort of piece together what they would be, given that they're just an individual running in a parliamentary 
system to be prime minister, not president. But how well do you think that their agendas meet the kind of public desires? How well were they suited to the kind of median voter centigrade that we talked about? It's difficult. You know, it's a difficult question to answer because when you look at the public and what they actually know about Sunak and trust, I mean, they, they did. There is some evidence of the idea of trust being about tax cuts and Sunak not cutting through. That that's, certainly is true. So, like when you when you say how likely is a Liz Truss Conservative government to do a bunch of things, um, maybe we'll come to this. But um, I think how many was it once? It was 13, 13 topics that we put to people. And the only one that Liz, a, a hypothetical Liz Truss administration led a hypothetical Keir Starmer administration on was reducing taxes. Um, and that wasn't the case for, for Rishi Sunak. He, he led slightly on growing the economy. So I do think the idea of their, their difference of opinion on economic policy has kind of cut through to some extent. But then their broader agenda is it's ever evolving, really, isn't it? And I talked about windfall taxes earlier with Liz Trust. So it's kind of hard to sort of say, well, people might like the idea of taxes being reduced, but then at the same time, they quite like the idea of a windfall tax. So it's quite difficult to sort of put a number on, okay, this this is how many support her agenda versus not. I think ultimately, for most people that don't engage in politics on a day-to-day basis, it's going to be a question of when Liz Trust is announced, if she is, or when Rishi Sunak is announced, I should say as well, if he is as Prime Minister, what's their agenda and uh, does it deliver? And I think that will be what defines their success or failure rather than what they're saying right now, because obviously they're trying to win an internal internal election right now. Okay, to, to bring the section of the political parties to a, to a close then, what are the public's views of Labour and Keir Starmer? So I would say if I was a Labour, if I was a Labour strategist right now, I'd feel cautiously optimistic. So I mentioned earlier there were 13 issues we put to the public. And I'm going to focus on Liz Truss for now, but we asked this about Starmer versus Truss and Starmer versus Sunak. It's a very similar picture. And we put 13 issues to the public and said, how likely or unlikely do you think it is that a Labour government under Starmer would um, and I'm not going to list them all out, but it was, thing, it was a mixture of things like active integrity or for a fresh start, but also deal with certain policy issues like, you know, reducing waiting times in the NHS, improving public services and so on. And start, a hypothetical Starmer government led a hypothetical trust government on 12 out of those 13 issues. And the biggest leads that a Labour government had, a hypothetical Labour government had, was on um, improving public services plus they led by 13 points, reducing wait times in the NHS, they led by 12, um, reducing regional inequalities, e.g. levelling up, they led by 12, um, offering Britain a fresh start, they led by 10. And those are the ones where Labour had a sort of double-digit lead over a, a trust administration. Uh, and look, this can change when, when that administration exists, of course, and... Uh, it was a similar story with Rishi Sunak, but there is some sort of what I would call latent positivity towards Labour in certain areas to do with public services and cost of living that would worry the Conservatives, ought to worry them more, in my opinion, than where voting attention headline figures are. Because you know, ultimately, I think the underlying numbers are what I'm looking at at the moment rather than the headline figure. Um, but I say cautiously optimistic because there are other numbers for Labour that are less positive or at least 
more more it's more ambiguous what they're saying so i'll start with labor on labor we have this long running trend where we say is the opposition ready to form the next government and right now 37% agree that it is and 43% disagree so the public are split now there is positives there for labor because that 43% that disagree is pretty low compared to um where labor have been since they left office in 2010. So under Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband, you were con consistently getting clear majorities, and in some cases, six in 10 disagreeing Labour were ready to form a new government, form a government. So that hostility towards Labour does seem to have dissipated a bit since Kistaner became leader. But the 37% that agree, whilst on the high end, if we go back to 2010, we have seen figures around that number before so like ed miliband did hit 35 percent at one point jeremy corbyn hit 32 which is a little bit further back but i think it's a neat characterization of labor's position less hostility but maybe people are not being quite sold on them yet and to put this in context when david cameron was leader of the opposition for the tories he had 47 percent agree the tories were ready whereas Starmer's was on 37 Starmer's labor was on 37 and so, so that was that was David Cameron's figure in April 2010 before he went on to um, lead the Conservatives to a victory. Of, well, to victory, it was a coalition, but to victory. Um, Tony Blair in the 90s had 55% saying Labour were ready. Um, so, I think that's I think that's a, an example of like yeah, like I say, less hostility, but certainly more to do. On Starmer himself, we ask how satisfied or dissatisfied you are with the job he's doing as leader of the Labour Party. His net rating, which is when you subtract the negative from the positive, is minus 20. Um, the average of a leader of the opposition going back to the late 70s is minus 12. So not that, a little, so a little bit worse, not that different. But when you bear in mind that most leaders of the opposition go on to lose, um, even being average isn't necessarily where you want to be. And um, it's a small sample size, but the two leaders of the opposition that won from opposition, David Cameron and Tony Blair, uh, in well, my lifetime, funnily enough, um, were both had net positives going into their general elections that they won. And that isn't to say that there's a rule that says that Keir Starmer has to be net positive or he can't win, but it does give you a little bit of context. And the final thing I'd say on Starmer is that um, his net rating, as I've said, is minus 20. Ed Miliband's net rating going into the 2015 election was minus 19. So in many ways, um, it's a bit over, it's oversimplifying perhaps, but Kislama's ratings are not that dissimilar to Ed Miliband's, who went on to lose. The difference is that Boris Johnson's rating as Prime Minister is currently minus 45, whereas David Cameron was minus 14 before he went into that election that he won against Ed Miliband. So it, it's, you can look at individuals and you can look at what people think of individual politicians, but of course it's all relative, isn't it, when you're looking at who people are deciding to vote for. So if you can imagine that Starmer's a bit of an Ed Miliband, for want of a better phrase, in the public's minds at the moment, um, that might sound bad, but it doesn't necessarily need to be if the next Prime Minister you know, has similar ratings to Boris Johnson when you go into the next election. And of course, with Keir Starmer, you know, his ratings now might not be his ratings going to that general election. It's sort of all to play for, I think. Um, but I think, you know, there is an element to which maybe winning by default is a little bit harsh. Um, but Labour will have more work to do to seal the deal with, with the public to, to convince them that they're a government in waiting. I just wanted to 
almost finished. I've just got one more question after this, but I just wanted to um, go into a little bit around Keir Starmer. So we've kind of talked about why Johnson was so unpopular around sort of dishonesty and lack of integrity. Have you got any um, insights why, when we say why, uh, in what way, on what element is Starmer uh, relatively unpopular. I mean, as you say, a bit worse than the average leader of the opposition and significantly worse than those who actually went on to win, similar to Ed Miliband. So what what is it specifically about Keir Starmer that the, the public are not taking to, are underwhelmed with or dislike or in any way, what are the sort of specific elements that they like or mm. dislike about him? I would definitely, I mean, I would definitely characterise it as lukewarm, you know, rather than necessarily hostile. I think that is important. I mean, I think um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was getting ratings of minus 60 at one point. Um, you know, so, it, and, and again, I'm not trying, for, for the, <laughs> any listeners listening, I, I'm not trying to sort of say that's right or wrong or why that was and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm just saying what the public said to us at the time. But, um, you know, Starmer's not, certainly not there. Um there's, there's two things, I've, two points I've made. One is that you get a decent, you do get a decent number of Labour voters not happy with what Kastama's doing. I think in my head, I've got 37% of Labour voters dissatisfied with him, although I, I'd need to check that. But at the same time, that is something that you often find is it's a weird quirk of Labour voters. Labour voters do tend to be more dissatisfied with their leaders than Tory voters do. So I don't know if there's something in there about voters on the left demanding more, or I don't know. But, um, Sorry, there's, just there's a pedantic point. Is that 2019 Labour voters or is that current voting intention Labour voters? That was current. That was that was that was current. Um, so so yeah, you do get you do get a decent. I mean, regardless of the specific figure, you do get a decent chunk of Labour voters. People say they vote Labour. People that say they will vote Labour that are dissatisfied with Starmer, but it's not unique to him. That's the important point. That that was the case under Corbyn. It was the case under Miliband. It's a little bit of a Labour thing. So, but the point is, when you're looking at the net ratings for a leader of the opposition, that all feeds into it. One thing that I think is more tangibly Starmer is this idea of people being clear of what he stands for, and we find that 49% of the public tell us that they're not clear what King Starmer stands for. And that it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, of course, you know, the more people know what you stand for, once they know, they might not like it. They might not like the politics. So there is something to be said for leaving it to the last. There is something to be said for leaving it to the last, but it, to an extent, to show your hand and then to to show your policies because you want to keep people with you or keep people listening to you as long as possible. But it certainly does feel at the moment that there's no clear idea of what it is he stands for, what his policies would be and things of that nature and i think that is something that you know as a general election comes up on horizon you're going to need to see change um but i would stress his ratings aren't awful um he's got time to turn things around like you know david cameron when he was leader of the opposition had moments when he was down at this sort of level but then he improved going into general election because we had the obviously we had the financial crash and, and and the aftermath of that, and people gave him a second look and his ratings improved. And I suppose you know I'm not here to give advice to Kistana, but I think given the crisis the country faces at the moment with the cost of living, this could be the moment where people reassess him 
if he's seen to grasp that and to propose policies that people agree with. Whether he will or not, no idea. Well, um, and that brings us to my final question, which, given everything that you know, everything that we've discussed here, what are your expectations for the next general election? And this could be quite broad-ranging, whether that's what the contested areas will be geographically, what might the contested areas might be in terms of the issues at stake now. And realise that pollsters are always very keen to say this is a snapshot, not a prediction. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you for prediction, but I am going to ask you for some sort of future analysis and expectations around what you think we might see come the next election. Yeah, L- Labour 295 seats. No, I'm, j- I'm joking. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to make hard predictions like that, of course. Um, so next election, I think right now the numbers look very bad for the Conservatives. And when I say the numbers, I don't mean voting intentions so much, um, because I think that what you'll f- tend to find in voting intention is that there'll be quite different headline figures depending on how people treat conservative don't knows uh, how people treat don't knows and they tend to be sort of 2019 conservative voters um so the polls can be quite bouncy at the moment in terms of the headline figure what i'm looking at at the moment is what are the issues people are concerned about what do they think the record of the current government is do they like the prime minister i know that we're obviously we're changing and that that that, that, that particular point which is important what do they think of the leader of the opposition you know it's a, what was the result last time what's the scale of change and so on and so forth and I think in terms of geography, you're going to be looking at, people are going to be looking at the so-called red wall. They're going to be looking at Lib Dem conservative marginals to sort of try and unpick you know, how many seats do the conservatives lose? Because I think that there is this, right now, it seems you'd be pretty confident the conservatives lose seats right now. Um, things can change, of course they can. But when you look at the underlying pessimism that I've mentioned, that the public have with the economy and with the direction of the country. When you look at the fact that a hypothetical Starmer government leads a hypothetical trust government on like 12 out of 13 issues. When you look at the fact that like the cost of living and public services are the top two issues that the public are concerned about and they seem to have, have, have this latent assumption labeled better at them, etc., etc., etc. Like it's hard to imagine how the Conservatives would stand still or gain seats in that environment. But obviously the million dollar question becomes how many do they lose and can they retain a small majority can they can they can they retain power in a similar way to Theresa May did in 2017 or will they end up sort of turfed out of office and we obviously don't know that but those are some of the geographical areas you look at and then I think you'd also have to look at Scotland um, and, and Wales of course too I don't want to ignore Northern Ireland but obviously it's a different different sort of party situation there um, yeah the Conservatives gained several seats in Wales it's a very specific constitutional question that hasn't gone away in Scotland. Um, you wonder what role that might or might not play in the general election. So I think we're not talking about Scotland a lot at the moment, but we we, we should be perhaps, and uh, that that will certainly come up. So there's a plethora of 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 different of different issues, but I think looking ahead, the big question to me is how does the new prime minister land in the next few months? I really do. It's a fashionable thing to say when we do these podcasts, but I really do think this next two, three months could be quite defining for how the next general election goes. I'm not going to say 
sit here and say that oh everything gets decided by Christmas because of course we don't know what's going to happen next year and the year after. But when you have a new prime minister, um, opinions can be set quite quickly if they don't get off to a good start. Um, similarly, as I mentioned earlier, Kistama's ratings aren't phenomenal at the moment. Um, and as an election approaches, people are going to pay more and more attention to the prospects of who the alternative is. So again, with the crisis that we currently face, he's got an opportunity to set his stall out and really sort of cast himself as a prime minister in waiting and Labour as, as a government in waiting. So it, it is hard to know what the issues will be at the next general election because, of course, we can't know two years in advance. My suspicion is that tax is going to be something the Tories try and go on. If they're going to cut taxes now, then they're going to try and position Labour as a tax-raising party. I suspect they'll go on borders and immigration because of the importance that has to 2019 voters. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll suspect they'll try and win re-election on tax and security and borders and uh, the support they have from certain sections of the media and to try and really play on any doubts that the public have about Keir Starmer. But with, with Labour, I think they'll want to talk about, you know, what will be what, if we assume it's in 2024, they'll want to talk about 14 years of Tory failure in their, in their eyes and, and public services and, 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 you know, how well off people feel or don't, and not, you know, the, the Reagan question of, are you better off than you were, um, you know, before the latest government. Um, but I really do think because voting is, you know, is fundamentally about choice, how the new prime minister lands and whether Keir Starmer can recast himself in voters' minds in the coming weeks and months is going to be pretty integral to what happens next. Brilliant. Kieran Pedley of Ipsos, thank you very much for joining us. That's been a really interesting um, talk. Oh, good to be with you. I've enjoyed it. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Goodbye and see you next time.